Well, it's a little bit pedantic Reading journals like The Lancet Up to date and those medical reviews But here we're more about the antics Than being caught up in semantics So listen here for your pediatric news This is Sumit. Welcome back to Pedantic. We had such a great response to our series on COVID-19 vaccination in children that we decided to do one more, and this one is really a treat. Our guest today is none other than Dr. Larry Stanberry, who is truly a legend in the field of vaccines, virology, and global health. When I say that he wrote the book on vaccines, he literally wrote two textbooks on vaccines. Uh, one is called Vaccines for Biodefense and Emerging and Neglected Diseases and the other is called Understanding Modern Vaccines. He has been funded by the NIH, CDC, and the Gates Foundation, and he was lead, the lead researcher on the GSK HSV vaccine trials. Uh, now he's the Associate Dean for International Programs and Director of the Programs in Global Health at Columbia, and of course, our former chair of pediatrics. He joins me today in a conversation about the SARS-CoV-2 virus and the vaccine in a global context. Dr. Stanberry, it's really a, a, a privilege to be able to talk to you today about COVID vaccines in, in, in global context. I know that you've been involved since the start, given your expertise in vaccinations and virology and infectious diseases. But I was struck by something that you mentioned early on um, before we recorded about your role on the Pfizer Data Safety Monitoring Board. And hopefully you can just talk briefly about that and, and what some of the things that that you've um be able to get involved with in that capacity have been and some of the surprises, some of the triumphs and some of the challenges. Thanks, Sumit. The, um, really delighted to be able to chat with you about it. Um, as you know, I'm a virologist and vaccinologist, spent most of my career working on the development of vaccines from both the, the very early parts, preclinical work, all the way through phase four human clinical trials. Uh, and I actually was involved in the conduct of four first in human trials where we were uh, taking brand new products never before put into humans, into patients to see, or into volunteers to see how they would respond and whether we could create new vaccines. Um, generally speaking, and I think most everybody's aware of this now, there's a very long timeline for vaccine development. And uh, during this pandemic, we've seen something happen that is uh, just absolutely miraculous. And that has been the uh, ability to condense the development pipeline timeline uh, to a point where in less than 12 months, uh, we actually went from uh, knowing what the virus was to having a vaccine, uh, two vaccines that were highly effective uh, and that are now being pushed into the arms of millions of people. And the reason that was able to happen was because of a great deal of advanced planning that went on prior to pandemic. So uh, anticipation, development of groups like CEPI, uh, which were looking for new platforms, uh, information that was gained from all of the work on HIV vaccines that failed, but gave us better understanding of how the structure of uh, the uh, antigens that are important in vaccines uh, could be um, could be stabilized so that we get amazing antibody responses, immune responses in general. I would have never guessed at the beginning of this pandemic that we would be where we are today 
with uh, what over well over 100 million Americans having been fully immunized now. And so uh, one of the things that was, was I was very pleased to be able to participate in was a call from uh, the Pfizer company early on during the pandemic when they were working hard on the development of their uh, RNA vaccine platform and asking if I would be uh, joining, if I was willing to join their uh, data safety monitoring committee, which is a group of five individuals, four physicians with vaccine experience and one biostatistician that looks at the unblinded data uh, that is coming out of the clinical trials, looking for safety signals and looking for any indication as to whether the vaccine trial may be a futile effort. Uh, in other words, an indication that there was no protection whatsoever. Uh, and so it was a job that I relished and that uh, as the data became clear to us, it was just so absolutely exciting data that we were aware of in November. Uh, and I must say that all five members of the committee, when they got close to their screens so they could see the results of the unblinded uh, analysis, everybody, there was a deep sigh and they all went, oh my goodness, we've never seen anything like this. So this was an absolutely fabulous experience. And now everybody's aware of just how safe and effective these vaccines are. I can only imagine that. I, 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 I remember my response when I read some of the data in the medical journals about about the, the initial mRNA vaccines. I can only imagine being on the inside of that discussion behind the scenes where you were um, having access to some of that data before anyone else, anyone else did and, and how much of a, like you said, a relief and, and a joy and also an excitement that there was given this is something that's really um really special in our lifetimes to, to witness. Um, so I want to get into some of the questions um, that, uh, that, that are on the minds of, of, of myself and many of our listeners here. Um, and the first is to talk briefly about some of the SARS-CoV-2 variants that are, that are in, in the news more and more each day. And um, um, what's the latest with those? And, and how do you make sense of the different variants and how that might affect the trajectory for the, for the pandemic? Sure. So... <clears throat> I think everybody that listens to your podcast is probably familiar with the fact that uh, SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus. RNA viruses are designed to develop mutations on an almost constant basis. HIV is a great example of that, where you've got constant mutations occurring. Um, influenza virus, another. It makes it a challenge both for antiviral drug development and for vaccines. But at the beginning, where we were seeing uh, the virus come along, one of the pressures that existed on the virus to mutate was to be able to be more infectious, to be able to spread. A virus's goal, uh, if it has a goal, is to reproduce itself. Its goal is not specifically to kill its host, uh, it's just to make more of itself. So what it does is it changes its genetic code in order to become more infectious, be able to spread more. And uh, and that's what we saw with the variants that were coming out. We were very concerned that uh, uh, it took less of an exposure to somebody who was contagious, who was affected with one of these variants to be able to spread it to somebody who was susceptible. And that's exactly what played out. Fortunately for us, uh, at least with the RNA vaccines and a number of the other vaccines that are uh, now approved, 
the mutations that occurred to make it more infectious did not make it uh, less uh, susceptible to the immune responses induced by the vaccines. So the three principal variants that we've worried about, the ones coming out of uh, the UK, out of South Africa, and out of uh, Brazil, seem to respond to the existing vaccines, by and large, there's a couple exceptions to that. Um, the concern now, and, and this is one of the reasons that immunizing the entire world is going to be important, as more and more of the world becomes immunized, what you're going to see is unless you get the place fully immunized, suddenly the pressure on the virus is not to mutate in order to be uh, more transmissible. It's to mutate to be able to avoid the immune responses induced by the vaccine. Uh, and so those are the variants that we're very concerned about could be evolving, especially in, in India at the moment, given the hundreds of thousands of cases that are occurring on a daily basis and the extremely low immunization rate in India. So we'll continue to monitor for that. The good news is that, um, is that uh, every, almost all of the vaccine manufacturers are already working on uh, vaccines that would specifically uh, target the, the variants in both Moderna and Pfizer, for example, um, already have clinical trials ongoing with variant vaccines. You spoke about India, which has been, uh, I've been, I've been hanging on to every word about the rise in cases in India. It's very close to my heart. And, and India is part of uh, the initiative, the COVAX initiative, uh, which is, as, as you know, but just for our listeners, it's a worldwide initiative directed by three agencies. The first is Gavi, which is the Vaccine Alliance. The second is CEPI, which is the Center for Epidemic Preparedness. And the third is the WHO. And so what can you tell us about the COVAX initiative and the challenges they have faced uh, in, 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 in disseminating and distributing uh, vaccinations across the world? So as you point out, the COVAX initiative, the COVAX facility uh, was designed to uh, collect donor money and uh, try to leverage much like the government, our United States government does to buy vaccines for children. Um, they're the bulk buyer and so they can drive down the price because they're buying in huge quantity. And the COVAX facility was intended to do exactly the same thing at the WHO level, global level for low and middle income countries where those countries would pay a fraction to some moderate amount um, of, uh, for vaccines compared to what they would cost if they were buying them on the open market. Uh, money was coming in from donor nations and from large uh, charities, philanthropies like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and uh, the Wellcome Trust. And uh, then what, the, uh, what CEPI and Gavi would do is go to manufacturers um, and they were only interested in purchasing ones that had been strictly um, reviewed from a regulatory perspective. So the vaccines had to be either approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, the European regulatory agencies, or uh, by the WHO, who has their own process for um, uh, reviewing and making recommendations to uh, member nations who themselves, those nations, may not have the regulatory uh, infrastructure to be able to make their own decisions about whether the vaccines are both safe and effective. So COVAX facility wants to buy only those same types of vaccines that we'd be willing to take in the United States. And the goal was to offer up to 20% of the vaccines needed to immunize a population in any given country. What 
what's happened, and, and they're being successful in that regard, getting donations, getting uh, funds from other sources in order to be able to make these purchases, but they've run up against um, a challenge that uh, wealthy nations are willing to pay a top dollar, sometimes above top dollar, in order to acquire the vaccines, making it increasingly difficult. Everybody's trying to ramp up, um, but right now there's a, it's a buyer's market, and if you've got the money, uh, you get to buy it. And so a COVAX facility doesn't have the kinds of um, uh, amounts of vaccine that is really uh, intended to provide, at least not yet. To follow up on that, um, there's been, you, you mentioned some of the, the economic factors that are playing into to this. And I will say as a society, I was very proud that the U.S. contributed for, or pledged at least, I think it was $4 billion, uh, towards COVAX. But there has been scrutiny of the role of high-income countries like the U.S. in stockpiling vaccine doses to vaccinate their population, more than 20%, of course, while other countries are still under 20%. Um, you know, some suggest that vaccines should go to other low-middle-income countries before we vaccinate children, uh, 12 to 15 in the U.S. Um, and that was a very exciting announcement that came last week um, regarding the FDA extending uh, EUA to children in that age group. But, you know, there still are likely a number of frontline providers, healthcare workers, and other LMICs that they're still being vaccinated. So how do you think through that dilemma um, of, of how to allocate vaccines in, in, a, in a very complex global uh, environment? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a complicated question, as you point out, and there's no easy solution to this. There's political realities. Uh, governments are there to serve their own people. And as a consequence, they're going to take care of those uh, that elected them first. And one would probably expect that would be the case. Um, I think there's a number of things that governments can do. The donation of cash is clearly really important since rather than giving the vaccines, uh, we just give the funds needed to buy, purchase the vaccines. Trying to accelerate manufacturing and making sure that resources, you know, redouble your efforts around producing the glass needed to make the glass vials to put the vaccines in. Sometimes the issue isn't with um, manufacturing the vaccines, it's the fill process. So there's a whole bunch of different steps that could be accelerated. And I think everybody's looking to see where that could be done. Um, the other issue is one of tech transfer and, uh, and cross licensure uh, so that other countries can start manufacturing. And we're seeing that as you're, as you're well aware uh, I, I suspect that uh, one of the vaccines that uh, was cross-licensed to one of the large Indian manufacturers. Uh, and so uh, we're seeing large numbers of doses being produced by India. Interestingly enough, uh, being shipped out of the country at a time when the nation needs it the most. And so they're struggling with what to do with that situation. So I, I don't, I, you know, I don't know, I'm not an ethicist, I recognize the problem, but I can't offer a solution to the problem uh, other than the fact that we need to view every possible method in order to increase the supply. And uh, at a point where nations feel like they've really provided care um, availability to their citizens, anything that's left over ought to be ought to be offered up as quickly as possible. And apparently that's part of what Mr. Biden's got in plan. Know that I, I, without getting too much into the the um, the state of politics in India, I'll say briefly that 
as you allude to, the um, the Serum Institute in India is the, the largest producer of vaccines in the world. Um, and they've certainly caught, the Indian government's caught some flack for for for, for shipping and, and, and exporting the vaccines um, when, uh, we, you know, in the past couple of months, we've seen really a, a, a dramatic upsurge in the number of cases in India. And I think that they're planning on reducing the number of vaccines that are shipped outside of India through June, um, but that has major implications for the rest of the world. We're counting on those vaccines to be made in India and shipped out uh, to other parts of the world. And so um, I think that just speaks to how how delicate a balance the cell is. Um, and, you know, some have stated that the, you know, the global vaccination is the most important issue of 2021 for some of these things that we've just discussed here. Uh, do you agree that is is that really the? I mean, 2020 may have been just treating and preventing COVID nineteen infection. Um, do you think that vaccinating the world is the most important issue of, of for this next year? Oh, a- absolutely. Um, if we don't get the world immunized, we're going to continue to see new variants. We're going to continue to see the virus uh, spreading to uh, enclaves that it that um, perhaps didn't bother the first go around. Um, and uh, if it's expected that it could take to 2023 to get much of the world immunized. So even though we're very comfortable at this point, um, the risk that a new variant could arise that's going to make uh, the vaccine that we all received ineffective is real. It's very real. And uh, the sooner we can get the entire world uh, immunized so that we don't have these variants arising, the better off we're going to be. Whether we're needing boosters, you know, that's a question we still don't know. What's the durability of the immune response? Um, don't know. There's a lot of things that are unknown. So I think the important thing here is, is that we've shown that these vaccines are highly efficacious. So this level of efficacy, you don't see with respiratory viral vaccines. You just don't. Uh, and so uh, it's one of the reasons that we can really feel comfortable at this point being unmasked in public because our personal protection is exceedingly high. Uh, Not like you would see perhaps with a typical bad flu year and a bad flu vaccine match. Um, So, um, but we're, we're not going to be able to show our faces in a lot of the rest of the world if new variants are popping up everywhere. So making the whole world safe is the only way to make uh, the U S safe. And, uh, so that needs to be our absolute priority. The health of each of us depends on the health of all of us, right? I think that's something that we often say in public health, population health, and that certainly applies here. It's uh, everything's an airplane ride away, as we found out in this pandemic, thinking it was coming from China and finding it was coming from Italy. You don't know where it's coming from. Right. So, no, it's, um, but the, there's a, it'll be interesting to see what happens post-pandemic in terms of response because so many things, as you know, did not work out well. We did an abysmal job on testing. We ran out of PPE. Uh, the, the, we've come to realize that we can't rely upon the current way of manufacturing and distributing vaccines, uh, which is, is not equally distributed across the world. I mean, there's essentially no... I, do a lot of work in Africa. It's essentially no manufacturing of vaccines, essentially none, some small amounts of vaccine manufacturing and fit and fill in Africa. It's a population of 1.2 billion people. They need to have their own ability 
that means tech transfer. Let me let me tell you one story that you probably know that I think is a, a illustrates what could happen in, in terms of thinking about the world. And are you familiar with the story about how China got the hepatitis B vaccine? No, I'd love to hear. So um, there was this fellow, you, you may be familiar with him. His name is Roy Vagelos. <laughs> His name is on our medical school, yes. <clears throat> well, Roy, who's a PNS graduate, medical school graduate from Columbia, uh, went on to become the head of the Merck company, which includes the Merck vaccine division. And they developed the very first hepatitis B vaccine. It was a recombinant vaccine just producing purified uh, protein and uh, by genetic means. Uh, and it was an absolute breakthrough. Vaccine had to be manufactured in ways that had never been manufactured before using genetic engineering. But hepatitis B, chronic hepatitis B, as you're probably aware, is a huge problem in China. And, uh, and there were even back when the vaccine was developed, you know, a billion people in China. And there was no way Merck was going to make the vaccine. China was not a wealthy country at that point. So uh, under Dr. Vagelos's leadership, uh, Merck made the decision to license the technology to China for $15 million. That's it. Nothing. That's a paltry sum. And, uh, and so now they had the rights to manufacture. Then he sent he helped them develop the know-how to actually do the manufacturing. China built the facilities and uh, uh, Dr. Vagelos's people at Merck helped the people who are going to staff and run those, those factories to, to know how to manufacture it the same way that Merck was manufacturing. So it was a transfer of intellectual property and a transfer of, uh, of know-how at the same time. And, uh, and needless to say, that was still, I suspect, the largest example of corporate philanthropy in, in history. Hmm. Uh, but that's, that's nothing theoretically to prevent other companies from emulating that with the COVID-19 vaccines. It's sad that it seems so far out of reach uh, to have that kind of you know, vertical integration and, and sharing of patents and ideas and, 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 and skills. But um, yeah, there's certainly a, a complex I guess, social, political, economic aspect to health. Well, there, there are a lot of other issues that sort of go along with it when you're thinking about trying to immunize the world. There's not a lot of experience in much of the world around adult immunization. Hmm. Um, you know, we, we've really focused historically on childhood immunization because that's where we, we have the greatest impact on human health, uh, immunizing children. But the you look over low and middle income countries, they often don't have much of an infrastructure for immunizing adults. You saw we didn't have much either. We sort of scrambled to create something and we're successful because of, we've got so much money to throw at things. But the, the, uh, the building of infrastructure is going to be important as well. The other thing is, is that most places, most countries, low and middle income countries, don't have the capacity to do assessment of vaccine safety in their own nations. And so building that kind of infrastructure is necessary. What do you do with the data then to convince people the vaccines are safe when you're talking about rural India or rural Botswana? Um, and so work needs to be focused on that. So it's not simply the manufacturing. It's going to be the distribution. It's going to be uh, convincing people that these products are really safe and that they should be coming forward to get immunized. So it's, uh, it's a much larger package than simply um, 
even if we have vaccines to provide, that lack of infrastructure for distribution, the lack of infrastructure for assessing safety and combating uh, vaccine hesitancy by and large doesn't exist. So we need to move on multiple fronts simultaneously. As you wrap up here and try to end in a high note, um, what success stories are there in vaccination um, from around the world and what lessons should we take away from those? Well, I, I think I think one of the ones that, that I'm really excited about is that, you know, we were seeing the greatest deaths in elderly people. And, uh, and we're always concerned that vaccines are not gonna work as well in elderly people because of, as term, you know, immunosenescence, their immune system just doesn't work as well as it did when they were much younger. And what we're seeing with these vaccines is they're highly effective in older people. And so those most vulnerable populations are going to benefit from the vaccines just as much as the healthy people who are at lower risk of disease. So I, I, I think of all those images of people in nursing homes who were kept from their families uh, because they, they were, the families were a risk to them. Um, you know, that, that doesn't have to happen. Uh, and so from my point of view, I think that's really exciting. Um, probably the greatest story uh, that comes out of this with regard to a specific population. Children, as we both care for so much, fortunately did not bear the brunt of this one, um, but they still are impacted by it. Uh, we, it's gonna, I'm sure scholars will be looking for the next decade. At what was the impact globally um, on children's education, which is going to mean to their learning curve, which is going to mean to their long-term earning potentials, which is going to mean to the GDP. So we need to get kids back to school as quickly as possible. Still a problem globally. So with any luck, we may have vaccines for the youngest by early fall uh, in the United States. And so I expect that we're going to see those moving into the global market as well so that we can make sure that kids can go back to learning. Um, I view that as another incredibly important story that comes out of the, the development of these vaccines. Well, we certainly covered a lot of ground today. Um, and before we wrap up, any, any last advice to our listeners regarding how to understand COVID-19 in the, in the greater uh, global context and make sense of all the, all the information and data that, that are coming out? I think it's pretty overwhelming. <laughs> I, uh, I remember reading in the New York Times um, when they were asking people about what, what's never going to change as a consequence of this pandemic or what's going to persist afterwards. And one epidemiologist wrote back that they would never have to again explain to somebody at a cocktail party what an epidemiologist did. So I, I think there's all kinds of new terms that have come into our vocabulary that uh, medical or scientific people may have known that are now pretty common knowledge to to uh, lay people. I, I think there's so many interesting lessons uh, coming out of this pandemic. Some of them are remarkable stories like the speed with which we were able to figure out what the virus was. That was days. And, uh, and how quickly a vaccine was developed. That was months. Um, but at the same time, it really laid bare so much of the world, all of the inequities that exist uh, between wealthy countries within wealthy countries. And so I'm hoping that what we'll see coming out of this is not a return to normal, but to begin to address some of those 
really structural issues that uh, that made some people at greater risk and made immunization more of a challenge. So um, it's a lot of issues on the social side um, that is probably more important than uh, that what we're learning on the uh, on the medical side. Well, there's like you said, there's certainly more to go in this pandemic. We're not we're not completely through it, but um, hopefully with better understanding. Um, we can be more informed and, and help those around us uh, also be more informed and and get one vaccinated, right? That's that's our that's our goal. It's the greatest gift you can give somebody, get immunized and make them feel safe, meaning make them, you know, family members who find out that you've been immunized are so glad they don't have to worry about you. Yeah. So please get immunized for your family. Well, it's been great talking with you today. It's great, always great to see you. And uh, thank you so much for sharing your expertise um, and for helping shed some light on on the COVID-19 pandemic in global context, where we've been, where we are, where we're headed. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for all, the, all of your continued excellent work at the national, international level for the sake of, of the children uh, in our local community and around the world. Now we'll hear from some of our listeners about why they chose to get the COVID-19 vaccine. My name is Steph, and I got vaccinated because at the height of the pandemic, I was a pediatrician taking care of adults with COVID, and my husband was working in an emergency room without enough PPE and without enough ventilators. And we both felt really helpless and always lived in fear of infecting each other or our families or strangers on the subway. And being able to get this incredibly safe and effective vaccine felt like the first time that we could do something that would really meaningfully help and protect each other and our community. My name is Sumit and I got vaccinated for a couple reasons. First, uh, about a year ago, I had the opportunity to volunteer on the adult side and care for patients in the adult ICU. And it was in that time that I saw the real devastating impact of this disease. Uh, we were seeing it all around us in New York City, and that just helped to solidify um, the, the need to get vaccinated to protect not only myself, but others around me. I wanted to protect uh, my coworkers, my family, and my friends, but also the community in which I work and I live. I also recognize how fortunate I am to live in a country and have an occupation that will afford me the opportunity to have a vaccine early. And so for those reasons, it was really a no-brainer. Hi, my name is Kate. I got vaccinated to protect myself so I can keep taking care of my patients. Thanks for listening, everyone. I always learned so much from Dr. Stanberry, and I'm sure you did too. We only scratched the surface on the crisis in India, but if you're interested and able to support the relief efforts there, you can refer to our social media platforms for links. That's Pedantech3959 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay safe. Stay hopeful, stay vigilant, take care of yourselves and each other, and remember that in the end, the health of each of us depends on the health of all of us.